Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 173rd episode of the Nauticast titled Legion Part 2, an analysis of a storm of swords, Daenerys 2, in which somehow, I can't and I don't know why, George Marmont gets away with having the best lines yet again. George, you can't let this asshole get away with this for so many times at this point. It's like that meme of Jesse from Breaking Bad going, he can't keep getting away with this. <laughs> That's us about Jorah Mormont, exactly. Last week, we had our, our first part of our analysis of A Storm of Swords, Daenerys 2, in which we covered the introduction to Astapor and Slaver's Bay, Danny's initial meetings with Krasnus, Monaklaus, and the other slavers. And now this week, we're going to be covering what they do after they leave that meeting. Danny talking with Barristan, her relationship with Eerie, and then her big uh, final conversation with Jorah Mormont. Yes, indeed. It's a good, lengthy, meaty chapter that we were able to split up into two, which we do do for some of our meatier, lengthier chapters. And I think this one got a lot of love because we split up into two parts. And as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not A Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timbob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archbishop June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Racken Michael, War of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscombe, Scarlet, the Other Robe Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, Word of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, Lord Jacob's Sister, to the Head of the King, Lady Zena Valerian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Day, and Prince Rigor Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Kelly, Warren the... Kelly, Warden of the East, Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Ted's Dent, the Trog Delight Warrior, Laura Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's Favorite Standard, Herald of Share, Ambassador Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentlemen of the Nauticast, Non-Binary, Not an Army, Holdover of the Way for t Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Venaris of House Golgarian, the first her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Award, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portia of the Realm, Lady Realist of Seven Kingdoms, Butter Pates, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Pounding of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Heron Hall, Hold up the holder of cubs, Sir Tim, the knight who's guided by voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Lord, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Recreator, and Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part Two, Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan, Luke, Lord of Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri State, Squire Matt as Future Matt as the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard. Lady Ivory Jane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warrens of the South, and patron of, and the patron of free willing bisexuals. Lady, Lady Jamisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate. Lord Christopher of Arendelle, official ice master deliverer of the Valiant, pungent reindeer king, keeper of feisty fans, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna. Lord Sir Supton Rutt, 
Lord Sir Septon Ruthers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the King's Wood, and the Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms. Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that promises to wait patiently for the Winsome Winner, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, hopeful, romantic, and unrepentant shipper, Lord Monsef, the severed head of uh, the severed head of a Targaryen prince riding on the council balls, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of the Donatar Castle, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and the War in the Western Reserve, and Lord Timothy Marshall, Master of Roads and Bridges. Thank you to all of our Not a Small counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Devils, histories, interviews, the Winsomer sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. We're going to skip over the question just for this week, simply because we already answered a really good question on our, our first half of the Storm of Swords Daenerys 2. But just as a reminder, if you want to shoot us questions we must answer here on the Nauticast podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where Sworn, sworn Swords or Higher Level get to ask us questions, as well as getting access to bonus episodes, early access to our regular episodes, merch, access to the Nauticast, a lot of great benefits. So definitely check it out if you haven't already. Absolutely. And as we say every single week, we are as rapidly attaining our goal. Maybe not as rapidly as we like to, but we're still attaining our goal of getting those Theon Wins the Winter sample episodes. Of course, Theon is my favorite. Wins the Winter sample chapter, guys. And we need help. We did the Forsaken in five parts, six parts, many, many parts for the Forsaken. We'll do Theon in five parts if you help us get to 950 total patrons. As of the recording of this episode, we are at 925 patrons, being that we are a mere 25 patrons away from achieving our goal. So help us, help you, help us. Yes, we'll go with that. So thank you so much to our patrons for supporting us, and thank you to our Sworn Swords for all of your great questions. We'll get back to them next week. But the last time we left Daenerys Targaryen, she had just left the Plaza of Pride, right? She left the Plaza of Pride and had journeyed back with Barristan Selmy, <clears throat> Arston Whitebeard, to visit her ship, Jorah and Eri. Let's find out how the rest of A Storm of Swords Daenerys 2 happens in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords Daenerys 2 Part 2. Danny climbed into her litter, frowning, and beckoned Arson to climb in beside her. A man as old as him should not be walking in such heat. She did not close the curtains as they got a wonder away. With the sun beating down so fiercely on the city of red brick, every stray breeze was to be cherished, even if it did come with a swirl of fine red dust. Besides, I need to see. Daenerys thinks that Astapor is strange, and that's saying something coming from someone who has seen all of the shit that Danny has seen. The streets were also made of the same red brick as the buildings, the pyramids too. But it's all old and crumbling and dusty, totally not a metaphor. The Dothraki call the Astapori to give way to Danny. When Jogo, one of her blood riders, goes for his whip to make this happen, Danny tells him, no, no, please, not here. This place has heard too many sounds of whips. To highlight this point, Danny watches her surroundings, noting that naked children, noting a naked child staring at ants, brittle left from guards, and red dust everywhere. An old city, this she reflected, but not so populous as it was in its glory, nor near so crowded as Carth or Pentos or Lys. The litter comes to a halt as a group of chained slaves are led across the street with whips. These were not unsullied, but common men and women, no children, and they were all naked. And they were all naked. Behind them, a noble Astapori man and woman laugh, paying no mind to all the brutality around them. Bricks and blood build Astapor, Whitebeard murmured at her side, and bricks and blood her people. What is that? Danny asked him, curious. An old rhyme a maester taught me when I was a boy. I never knew how true it was. The bricks of Astapor are red with the blood of the slaves who make them. Oh, I can well believe that, said Danny. 
Then leave this place before your heart turns to brick as well. Sail this very night on the evening tide. Danny wishes she could follow through with that, but she has to leave with an army, so says Jorah. Yeah, but Jorah was a fucking slaver, according to Barstan. She should hire a sellswords from the free cities instead. Dishonorable work, but not slave work. That didn't work out so well for, for Viserys, according to Danny. All he got of it was shame and humiliation, and became a beggar. In Danny's mind, beggar, greater than sign, slaver, per Barry. One more time. Beggar, greater than sign, slaver, per Barry. Danny snaps that Barristan doesn't know what it means to be a beggar or a slaver, but she knows what it means to be a beggar and to be sold. She was sold to Drogo by Viserys, and that Viserys got crowned. She knows what it's like to be afraid. Arston starts to apologize, but Danny says that she just got she just has that old dragon's temper. She wants honest counsel. Barristan, well shit, I just can't keep coming out and saying it over and over again. Arston says he'll try to remember that. He has a good face and great strength to him, Danny thought. She could not understand why Sir Jorah mistrusted the old man so. Could he be jealous that I have found another man to talk to? Unbidden, her thoughts went back to the night on Valerian when the exile knight had kissed her. He should have never have done that. He has thrice my age and of too low a birth for me, and I never and I never gave him my leave. No true knight would ever kiss a queen without her leave. She had taken care never to be alone with Sir Jorah after that, keeping her handmaids with her aboard ship and sometimes her blood riders. He wants to kiss me again. I see it in his eyes. For her part, though, Danny doesn't exactly know what she wants. Jorah's kiss had awoken something in her that hadn't stirred since Drogo. She wonders what a man would feel like, and she imagines that who the dude might be. Not Jorah, of course. Her lover, in her own mind or imagination, was younger and handsome. His face, a shifting shadow. Who might this person be, you might ask? Quaith, I answer, sorrowfully. One night it had gotten so bad that Danny decided to give it the whole handsy-feely thing and found that she was saucy down southy. God, I fucking hate that I just said that. She started to touch herself until Eerie woke up and saw what she was doing. And then her handmaid helped out until Danny orgasmed. Eerie then went immediately back to sleep. And the next day, it felt like it was a dream that had nothing to do with Jorah or Eerie, only Drogo. But her son and stars was dead, and she was never allowed Jorah to work her up like that again. Danny flashes back to the present, sees the great pyramids by the shore amidst another large harpy still holding a rusty chain. Ago helps Danny down, and she sees strong Bellwas who asks her if she wants some of the dog he's eating. Um, she doesn't, even though she's had dog before. All she can think of now was the Unsullied and the puppies. Danny reaches the ship and sees Jorah, who, by the way, sucks, is there. He tells her that the slavers went over the ship and took note of everything they have. He inquires how many Unsullied are for sale. None. Was it Mormont she was angry with or the city with its sullen heat? It stinks and sweats and crumbling bricks. They sell eunuchs, not men. Eunuchs made of brick, like the rest of Astapor. Shall I buy 8,000 brick eunuchs with dead eyes that never move, who kill suckling babes for the sake of a spiked hat and strangle their own dogs? They don't even have names, so don't call them men, sir. Khaleesi, he said, take it back, boy, very. The, the unsullied are chosen as boys and trained. I have heard all I care to of their training. Danny could feel tears welling in her eyes, sudden and unwanted. Her hand flashed up and cracked Sir Jorah hard across the face. It was either that or a cry. Man, it's so satisfying when Danny slaps Jorah. Anyways, Jorah starts battling about whether he displeased Danny, and Danny's like, Yeah, you slaving asshole bitch, you have certainly displeased me. If you were my knight, you would have never brought me to this vile sty. If you were my true knight, you would have never kissed me or looked at my breast the way that you did, or. As, uh, as your grace commands, I shall tell Gro Captain Grolio to make ready to sail in the evening tide for some style less, for some style less file. 
But then he says, no, she wants to sail, but she can't. She has to figure out some way to buy the Unsullied. Danny blows past everyone and heads down to her dragons. Viserion tries to perch on her shoulder, but Danny shrugs him off and tells him that he's too big. But Viserion just holds onto Danny's arm, and Danny gives up and gets onto Grolio's chair. Eerie tells Danny that the dragons were wild while Danny was away. Drogo, Drogon even tried to escape when the slavers saw them and even bit Eerie. Danny asks if the dragons tried to burn free, but no, they didn't. The slavers didn't even come near the dragons as they were blowing fire towards their way. Hmm, not, not foreshadowing at all. Danny says she's sorry Drogon bit Eerie, but the dragons are not meant to be locked away. Same with the horses, Eerie says, and their riders. None of the Dothraki want to be in this boat and they don't like the salt sea. Danny agrees, and Eerie asks if Danny is sad. Yes, Danny admitted, sad and lost. Should I pleasure my? Should I pleasure the Khaleesi? Danny stepped away from her. No, Eerie, you do not need to do that. What happened that night when you woke? You're, you're no bed slave. I, I freed you. Remember you? I am handmaid to the mother of dragons. The girl said, "It is great honor to please my Khaleesi." I don't want that, Danny insisted. I don't. She turned away sharply. Leave me now. I want to be alone to think. Dusk settles over the ship, and Danny looks over Astapor from the deck of the ship as the stars come out. She sees that the silk lanterns are out too, and everything looks almost beautiful. But it's definitely dark in the barracks where a boy is feeding scraps to his puppy after the slavers castrate him, so thinks Danny. Jorah steps up behind Danny, all creepy ass-like, and asks if he could speak frankly to her. Danny refuses to face him, which I totally agree with, thinking that she was so confused she could do anything. She finally tells him to speak his mind. On his mind is the history of the Seven Kingdoms and how the Vale, Rock, and Reacher kings didn't just give Aegon a crown. He had to take it by force. Blood and fire, thought Danny. The words of House Targaryen. She had known them all her life. The blood of my enemies I will shed gladly. The blood of incense is another matter. Eight thousand unsullied they would offer me. Eight thousand dead babes. Eight thousand strangled dogs. Your grace, said Jorah Moment. I saw King's Landing up to the sack. Bays were butchered that day as well, and old men and children at play. More women were raped than you can count. There was a savage beast in every man, and when you hand that man a sword or spear and send him forth to war, the beast stirs. The scent of blood is all it takes to wake him. Yet I have never heard of these unsullied raping, nor putting a city to the sword, nor even plundering save at the express command of those who lead them. Brick they may be, as you say, but if you buy them henceforth, the only dogs you'll they'll kill are those you want dead. And you do have some dogs you want dead, as I recall." Danny remembers that she wants to kill the usurper's dogs. She asks why the Dothraki never sacked Astapor, though. Even a weak Kalisar could take this wretched city. As to that, there are two reasons, according to Jorah. The first is that the Unsullied would kick the Dothraki's ass, and the Dothraki haven't attacked the Unsullied since Kohor. The second reason is that the Dothraki need to sell their captives somewhere. If they sacked Astapor, they really wouldn't have any place to sell their captives. Beyond that, the Astapori buy the Dothraki off just like the Patashi Magisters did. Danny realizes that bribes are cheaper than wars, and she fantasizes about going to King's Landing with the dragons and then giving a chest of gold to make Joffrey go away. Jorah, the fucking creep, which I cannot believe here, then starts touching Danny's arm, and Danny shrugs his probably still sticky fingers off. She says Viserys would buy as many Unsullied as he could, but she was like Rhaegar, according to Jorah. Jorah remembers saying this. Well, Rhaegar led free men into battle, right? Whitebeard said that Rhaegar dubbed Squires as knights himself. That's true, according to Jorah. A great honor. Tell me, then, when he touched a man on the shoulder with his sword, what did he say? Go forth and kill the weak, or go forth and defend them? 
at the trident, those brave men Viserys spoke of who died beneath our dragon banners, did they give their lives because they believed in Rhaegar's cause or because they had been bought and paid for? Danny turned to Mormont, crossed her arms, and waited for an answer. My queen, the big man said slowly, all you say is true. But Rhaegar lost on the trident. He lost the battle. He lost the war. He lost the kingdom, and he lost his life. His blood swirled downriver with rubies from his breastplate, and Robert the Usurper rode over his corpse to steal the Iron Throne. Rhaegar fought valiantly. Rhaegar fought nobly. Rhaegar fought honorably. And Rhaegar died. I'm still upset that Jorah Mormont continues <laughs> to get the best lines in this goddamn series. But that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords in Eras 2, Part 2. Boy, do I love a good setup chapter, and A Storm of Swords Daenerys 2 definitely provides that. And A Storm of Swords, the second part, really helps to set up what's going to happen here in Daenerys 3. What did you think, sir? So last week we covered, as I was saying, the introduction to Astapor. Danny and the reader alike soaking in the horror show of it all. This week, we're covering how Danny and her followers react. What are we going to do about this place? Should we take part, or not, or is there a third option? As Danny demonstrated last week by bringing along Barristan, she wants to hear from all possible perspectives before making a decision. She wants to understand Astapor, although as we see with her deliberations on sex and romance, she doesn't even fully understand herself. It's all about what Danny wants versus what Danny needs, her personal desires versus doing the right thing. There are no easy answers available, and so Danny has to gradually, deliberately build her own answer, which is of course what we're going to be exploring in Danny 3. Yeah, you kind of get the sense that Danny is entering into like her physical and emotional maturation here as she's entering like adulthood mm -hmm. um, here and starting to like develop like who she is as a person and starting to kind of reach, you know, who she is as a as, as a human being and, and, and as a woman. And I think in, in this, when we're talking about that, like to take outside that perspective and talk about the meta here for a moment, in 2020, George talked about splitting and combining chapters for the Winds winner as that was always and has always been part of his process. I think... Danny, too, from A Storm of Swords, we are seeing a fusion of several different plot and character threads, which leads me to think that at one point this may have been two or even three different, ch different chapters during its journey to publication. Mm -hmm. We have the Krasny scene, which we covered last week, which anchors the chapter around the conflict of Danny between the brutal slavery practice in Astapor and Danny's need for an army. There's also the Barristan mini Arisarchy point out so well last week that we'll continue to cover here in a moment. And then there's Jorah Mormont implying that Danny is like Breaker. But now she needs to become more ruthless, unlike her brother. Though these may have started as disparate strands, I think George does a marvelous job weaving them all together into one dynamic chapter. This chapter does a great job of setting things up, but it's also marvelous in and of itself because it makes us care about the spot in Danny's arc. So we're excited to see how Danny's choices are going to go forward from here in what we think is kind of an impossible situation for Danny. So it's exciting for us, and we're excited to find out what happens in Danny's next chapter when she finally makes that great fiery decision. As Danny heads back to her ships, George widens the scope a bit to show us the rest of Astapor beyond the Plaza of Pride. On one hand, we see the splendor and might of the city. There are elephants with latticework litters, mounted warriors with their hair twisted into fantastic shapes. Danny compares their hairdos to demons out of hell, again establishing the Red City as the most hellish place on Earth. But she also takes note of a kid who's playing with ants and picking his nose. He watches the writers for a bit, and then he gets right back to it. This undercuts the performance of power, exposing it as a temporary distraction, after which the city returns to rot. As Danny thinks, this might be an old city, like the masters boasted, 
but it's past its glory days, not nearly as populous or rich as the other cities she's visited in Essos. How did the city's movers and shakers deal with their decline? Same as they do anywhere, by not thinking about it. Danny watches a well-dressed couple laugh and flirt, paying no mind to their slaves. If they can ignore the people around them, they can ignore that their city is crumbling. And that's the only way Danny could take part in all this. Pretend it's not real. To do so, Barristan argues, would be turning her heart to brick. He's right. But his solution is to just leave, which would also be turning away from what she saw here, as Barristan turned away from Krasnus in the first part of the chapter we covered last week. Right, turning away from violence is a very Barristan move here. And I think there's also this deep dissonance between what's happening and how the free people, so to speak, of Ashbor respond. I, I, I think like Danny is has to like justify like pretending that this isn't happening and the people are ignoring it but i'm not even sure that they're actually that the couple that we saw here is ignoring the violence that's happening around them or the sounds of whips and the crying of enslaved people it might be like kind of like white noise to them or maybe even like background noise to everyday mm-hmm. life right it's almost like you know if you live in like a city and you hear like traffic all the time like you stop like your brain stops processing that you're hearing traffic it just becomes part of the background noise to their everyday life yeah and i think that that's talking about how insidious and the, the how the practice of slavery is so deep and insidious in the lifeblood of the city that the sounds of human suffering are just kind of like traffic again in a major city that is the real insidiousness of the slave system seen in Aspor and what occurred of course in the United States and Western Europe well throughout Europe really the beatings the castrations the murder of infants the tossing of children to bear pits they're, they're fucking heinous itself but the insidiousness of it the reason why it just like twists like how humans act, act and operate is found in how people who are not who are in the system or are not slaves, have they just simply simply stopped giving a shit about it or pretend it's not even happening. Danny brought Barristan along as a counterweight to Jorah, so she makes him respond to Jorah's argument. Danny needs an army to take Westeros. Barristan reminds her that Jorah himself is a slave trader. He turned his heart to brick a long time ago. Does she really want to join him? Okay, well, what's the alternative? Barristan advises she hire sellswords in the free cities. It's dishonorable, according to him, but it's better than slavery. Danny, though, doesn't want to play that game either. It reminds her too much of Viserys, begging for mercenary support from uncaring foreigners. More to the point, it reminds her of Karth, and this is where that subplot pulls some weight in her story. Karth left Danny frustrated and angry. She played by the rules there, taking part in all the little rituals Zerozo and Daxos told her to, and it got her nothing. She felt like a pet, like a plaything. Bowing and scraping like that grinds you down, shredding your sense of self-worth. As Danny says, it starves the soul, even if it feeds the belly. So what's worse, to starve your soul by begging, or to turn your heart to brick by slaving? Barristan says the latter is worse, and I do 100% agree with that. I can't believe I'm agreeing with Barristan, but yes, I agree with Barristan here too. <laughs> that, is, that is the obvious moral choice here. But it, it is a really hard choice for Danny and for readers, especially having come off the heels of the last Jamie chapter, which had cell swords committing atrocities in the Riverlands in the form of the Bloody Bumbers. Good point. Mm-hmm. That... That's the reader's perspective, though, but I think it's an important one. We've had the context of what sellswords do in Westeros versus what the Unsullied might do in Westeros. But George, though, wants us to have that perspective in mind, but he wants us to reframe that entire equation through Danny's personal perspective. He wants to nest us in why Danny is so upset about this and really considering this in very personal terms. And I think that's a really great literary choice to have that dynamic for readers and for Danny the character. Yeah, exactly. Danny's response isn't really about the substance of the argument, it's more about perspective. She says that this is all abstract for Barristan. After all, he's been neither beggar nor slave. What does he know? Danny knows. She was sold to Caldrogo. 
This is an important moment for Danny's story, summing up the contradictions and complexities of her character. Danny is right that she knows better than Barristan what it's like to be treated as property, but it's unclear what exactly that means in terms of what they do now. Is she saying that she can better empathize with the Unsullied? Maybe she can, maybe not. Danny says that Drogo eventually treated her well, but he easily could not have, and she did have to live with that potential reality, the fear of that. Viserys was the one who sold her, but Danny can't bring herself to reject him entirely. The Dothraki take part in this slave system. They spot a Dothraki overseer whipping a line of slaves, but Danny leads a Dothraki Kalasar, and she came to Slaver's Bay to take part in this herself. Danny is reminding Barristan and the reader that she can't take her position of power for granted. She must always remember what fear feels like. That's a powerful statement. But it's also a dodge. It doesn't actually resolve the question about whether they should do business with the slavers. All Danny has really said here is that because she has been victimized, it's not okay to frame her as a victimizer. That idea, unfortunately, has only become more relevant since this book came out. It's the idea that suffering from one kind of abusive power gives you a blank check for how you handle any other kind of abusive power that falls into your hands. Danny has been put in a powerless situation in terms of gender. She was at Viserys' mercy as her brother, and then Drogo's mercy as her husband. She was at the bottom of their little pyramids. But here in Astapor, she's at the top, at least relative to the Unsullied. She's the one who gets to decide their fate. She was kept cool in the shade with the masters while the Unsullied sweat under the sun. And you can see this dichotomy throughout the series. Jon felt like he was at the bottom of the pyramid in Winterfell, but then Donal Noy told him that he was a contemptuous elite in the eyes of his fellow watch recruits. Cersei is both powerful and powerless at the same time, depending on how her wealth, political status, gender, and sexuality interact. Power is a complicated thing. Not because there's any nuance we should respect to individual abusive actions, but because there are just so many kinds of power. Sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't, like a Venn diagram. Even as Danny declares she knows what it's like to be on the receiving end, she's lashing out at Barristan with what she calls the dragon's temper. On reread, we know that's exactly what he's worried about, that she'll lose her temper like Eris did. Now that's not a fair one-to-one comparison, just as Danny is not the moral equivalent of the Masters of Slaver's Bay. Instead, I think it's worth keeping Miriam Mazdor's example in mind. Danny tried to help her, with the best of intentions, but Miriam Mazdor was not about to ignore the context of their relationship, the destruction of her village. Danny's suffering doesn't mitigate the suffering of the Unsullied. She empathizes with them. That's great. The question is what she's going to do with that empathy. I think that's exactly right. Empathy in and of itself is not enough to undo the wrongs of the world. There has to be action, at least in the context of Danny's character, specific character. That's, of course, in contrast to Barristan and his experience with Eris the Second Targaryen. Recall what he thinks in A Dance with Dragons, the Queen's Guard. He had seen things that it pained him to recall, and more than once he had wondered how much of the blood was on his own hands. Barristan had empathy too. I mean, give Barristan at least that in the court of Eris the Second Targaryen. He was very likely in the throne room when Brickard and Brandon Stark were murdered and witnessed Eris' atrocities at Duskendale. He even felt guilt and culpability for the evil that he witnessed. But he didn't do anything. The question for Daenerys is whether she will be different from Barristan in this. It's interesting that amidst all of this rumination here and later in the chapter with how slavery is practiced, that Danny has... You know, awesome as, as interesting as her, as her perspective is, doesn't connect what happened at the Lazarine town from Game of Thrones with what's occurring here in Astapor. But she really should. Remember what Jorah told her back in A Game of Thrones? 
I've told the call he ought to make for Marine, Sir Joris said. They'll pay a better price than he'd get from a slaving caravan. Illyra writes that they had a plague last year, so the brothels are paying double for healthy young girls and triple for boys under 10. If enough children if enough children survive the journey, the gold will buy us all the ships we need and hire men to sell them. Now, though, Danny's cognitive disconnect here is entirely normal. We don't want to think of ourselves as a villain here, as part of the cycle that inflicts the human suffering that Danny sees in Astapor. We had nothing to do with this as the regular normal people who go about our daily lives, right? Right. I think that you're totally right. That cognitive dissonance is the subject here, not just what Danny is thinking about, but how she's thinking about it and how she shifts between different modes of thinking about it and how it applies to her own life. George shifts here from the political to the personal, as Danny thinks about her frustrated sex drive and how she's been dealing with it. I do think her sexual relationship with Erie is something of a missed opportunity. It never really develops. They sleep together again later in Storm and again in Dance with Dragons, but we never learn more about Erie to distinguish her from Jiqui in terms of personality or backstory. Now, she's a secondary character, of course. She's never going to be explored to the extent of Danny herself. That's just the way of it. But these scenes could make us more intimate with the Dothraki characters in a way that the previous books have failed to do, and I think they just don't. It does tie into Danny's arc in terms of how she balances her individual needs with her political responsibilities. She set sex aside after Drogo died. All her attention has been elsewhere. Jorah's kiss changed that, not because she desires him, but because it reminded her of desire in general. She tries masturbating one night, and the dragons stir in response. They're her id, the drive she keeps hidden, even from herself. It's the dragons that wake up Eerie. They make Danny's internal processes tangible and visible. Eerie knows what to do without being told. She makes Danny come, but as most people learn at some point, orgasms don't necessarily cure loneliness. It is loving sex between equal partners that Danny misses, which is what Jorah was hinting at. As Danny realizes, this isn't really about Jorah or Eerie, it's about Drogo. He was her first, and the intensity of that dynamic is hard to live up to. It's only all the more complicated by the fact that, as she told Barristan, Drogo bought, Drogo bought her, like property. Her personal desires can't be kept separate from the political and economic structures around her. She locks her complex feelings about Jorah the individual away beneath the simple structural rule that he presumed too much as a knight upon his queen. When Eerie offers to pleasure Danny again, Danny insists that Eerie doesn't have to do that because she freed her. Eerie is no longer a bed slave. What does that practically amount to, though? Eerie's got nowhere else to go, and her privileged position here depends on making Danny happy. On reread, it reminds me of the people in Mirene who try to sell themselves back into slavery, and those tend to be scribes and bedmates, not the hard laborers. Danny takes over the Kalisar and spearheads a revolution in Slaver's Bay, but new structures need constant reaffirmation. Otherwise, people slip back to the old way because it's what they know. It's tangibly rewarding. So her relationship with Eerie overlaps with what she saw in Astapor. Danny can't bear the idea that exploitation could exist within her own camp, because she identifies more strongly with the Unsullied than with the Slavers. But given her rarefied position as the Queen, Mother of Dragons, the Unburnt, etc., who even would be an equal to Danny? The more powerful she gets, the more isolated she gets, which is so tragic because for her, power is a means to the end of finding a home, a way to not be lonely anymore. Oh man, that's such a really good point. I didn't even consider it when I was rereading your your notes earlier because like, yeah, who is actually going to be equal to Daenerys Targaryen? And the person might be someone we'll discuss at the end of this this analysis here, um, which makes it all the more tragic as I'm, as I'm thinking about it now. So remind me of that point when we get there towards the end of this episode. But but I but I think, you know, ultimately 
many people have talked about you if you read enough political biographies or have read a song of ice and fire more over and over again you do get the sense that power inherently causes loneliness and that's what danny experienced here even before she tells eerie that she's sad she does in the next scene danny can't be sure that the people around her actually care about her or whether they're just kind of the paid help or being the way they are to her because that's what's expected rather than doing what they must do out of obligation or rather non-obligation I think the way that Eerie talked about it, about being a great honor to serve for Khaleesi, was a spot that unnerved Danny because it showed that even those close to her are playing parts rather than being genuine. In a way, it's sort of similar to the role that Danny occupied in Khal Drogo's Kalisar. Sure, she did eventually come to love Drogo, but even when she occupied a place of some equality with Drogo, she was still the lesser partner, subservient to his will. And she had to play the part of Khaleesi to Drogo's Kalro. I think about the scene from the Game of Thrones Daenerys 6, where she's asking Drogo to take his Kalisar over the Salt Sea and invade Westeros, and he's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. This poison water. And she has to kind of abide by that until, of course, you know, George rescues Daenerys Targaryen uh, at the end of that chapter with the uh, the wine cellar, if you want to call it a rescue. For whatever I don't think that Eerie harbors any ill will for Danny, And I think that she genuinely likes Danny and thought she was doing what was best for Khaleesi and kind of kind of wrapped them all up into one, uh, one, one action. But it lends evidence to the Stannis maxim that kings have no friends, only subjects and enemies. Can kings or queens have friends? It's kind of a hard hard question to answer. The the examples here don't really point positively toward are not really dispositive towards the idea that kings and queens can have friends of equality anyways. Renly had plenty of friends, but when he died, all of his former bannermen turned to Stannis or Joffrey. Really the only person that seemingly misses him at all is, is Loras Terrell. Rob Stark seems like a good enough dude, right? Seems like the guy I would love to be buds with. But his peers, like Torrin and Eddard Karstark, they're dead. And the ones he's close to are his mom, his wife, and his uncle. Not exactly friends, they're family. Stannis has Davos for a friend of sorts, but that friendship is limited by Davos' subservient role to Stannis. And we never see the two of them interact on page after Davos defies Stannis over Edric Storm. We don't get to see what they, these two men look like on sort of an equal standing and footing. The only real standard of friendship, the only real friendship between a king and a subject was that of Edward Stark and Robert Baratheon, who forged a strong bond of friendship before Robert's Rebellion. But with Robert as king, Ned took on the follower role to Robert, until he, of course, defied his king over the ordered murders of Daenerys and Viserys. Still, it's clear from the early Ned chapters in the Game of Thrones that Robert just wants Ned to be his old friend again, like old times. The problem is that that wasn't old times back then, and Ned couldn't precisely occupy the same role as he had prior to Robert's rebellion. So, of course, it's natural for this chapter, and in talking about friendship and things like that, to have a whole discussion about Robert's rebellion here at chapter's end. Yeah, that's a great point that that Danny is dealing with the, the inability to be on that that footing of equals with any of her people, given her power over them, and and Astapor just kind of the 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 gross exaggerated inequalities of Astapor kind of throw that into sharp relief for her. What she saw in the city infects the rest of her relationships as well. She can't eat roast dog with Belwas because of the Unsullied and their puppies. They're stupid puppies, Danny thinks, which is a lot like Arya. If you belittle the source of your pain, maybe it'll stop hurting. It doesn't work though. Danny is also angry at Jorah for multiple reasons. She slaps him not only because he brought her to this vile sty, but, as we see in her thoughts, because he kissed her as well. Really, I think it's the combination of the two, personal and political, the intimacy contrasted with the horror show. If you loved me, why show me this? It's the same struggle Danny feels when looking out at Astapor from her ships. It looks beautiful, the silk lanterns lighting up the pyramids just as Krasnus said they would. 
But Danny knows from Karth that appearances can be deceiving, and that down in the dark, the next generation of Unsullied are suffering. Again like Arya, Danny is being radicalized, not by individual acts of depravity, but by recognition of the systematic scale of suffering. She can't look at beauty anymore without thinking of all the misery harvested to make that beauty possible. This is what Zerozo and Daxos tells her when it comes back to the story in A Dance with Dragons. If all men must grub in the dirt for food, how shall any man lift his eyes to contemplate the stars? If each of us must break his back to build a hovel, who shall raise the temples to glorify the gods? For some men to be great, others must be enslaved. And that's a familiar scenario for the reader as well. We all take part in economic transactions knowing that exploitation is occurring, sometimes several degrees removed, sometimes right in front of our faces. It's easy to ride a railroad and not think about who built it. It's easy to cheer on your favorite team without looking to how the stadium got built. Danny is facing an extreme case of enslavement and dehumanization, but I think the core question is universal. Do I take part in the machine? It reminds me of Ursula Le Guin's classic story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, in which a beautiful utopian city is maintained by the suffering of one isolated child, and those who can't stand that, as the title indicates, leave. Danny says the unsullied have eyes of brick, an evocative description that ties into Barristan's little rhyme about Astapor. The dead dogs, the dead babies, all of it ripped the hearts out of men and left behind only stone. Danny's dragons express the wrath she can't. Upon her return to the ships, she discovers that her scaly children went wild while she was gone. But they express love as much as anger. I love the moment when Viserion latches onto Danny's arms like a gigantic kitten, knocking her to the bed as she giggles. This is the intimacy she can never seem to find elsewhere. Again, they're her subconscious, expressing everything she restrained to maintain her public polite face with the slavers. It's that intensity of feeling which has been denied to the Unsullied in order to turn them into something more or less than human. Jorah argues that this is actually an advantage. She's not going to be able to take over Westeros peacefully any more than Aegon the Conqueror did. Blood and fire, Danny thinks. Those are her house words. She was never going to be able to avoid them. And this is a complex conversation because I think they both have half a point. Jorah is right that Danny's homecoming will mean war. But he's making a fallacious argument that, therefore, she must accept any and all violence along the way. Danny is right to make the distinction between killing her enemies and killing innocents, but that distinction is not as easy to preserve in practice. What about the soldiers who would be sent out to fight and die for the usurper's dogs upon her arrival? Are they her enemies, or are they innocent? They're not the ones giving the orders. But it was ordinary soldiers who sacked King's Landing, the Steel Shanks Waltons of the world as well as the Gregor Cleganes. Jorah describes the horror of the sack as he arrived with Ned Stark's men too late to stop Tywin. Countless rapes and so many children butchered. Jorah believes that's human nature, the primal beast inside the rational, civilized shell of man. War gives that beast an excuse to come out. So according to him, it's not even really about the commander. Ned Stark wouldn't have deliberately sacked the city if he reached it first, and that definitely would have made a material difference. But it still wouldn't have been peaceful. There's no way he could have controlled all his men. The Unsullied, Jorah says, remove that possibility. Their blood doesn't stir like other men. They won't rape and slaughter babies unless you order them to. What a bitter irony that the Unsullied have only been purged of this instinct by going through hell themselves. It feels like no matter what path Danny takes, responsibility for dead children waits at the end of it. It's a question of control. How much control do you really want? Do you want to be able to control your soldiers so thoroughly that they won't do anything without an order first? Well, if not, aren't you opening the door to them committing atrocities on their own? 
In truth, using the Unsullied does not erase the possibility of war crimes. It just moves the buck to Danny herself. As Dora says, they would still do it if you ordered them to. And she has some dogs she wants dead, Jora says, which links the usurper's dogs phrase to those dead puppies in Astapor. Yeah, I think it's a <laughs> it's, it's manipulative on Jora's part to, to definitely like kind of tie mm-hmm. like her desire to like bring down the usurper's dogs to the dogs for the Unsullied kill or the rather the proto-Unsullied kill. And I think it's also interesting that Jorah chooses the sack of King's Landing as like the, the way that you would contrast what the Unsullied would do versus what freedmen would do in, the, in these situations. He doesn't mention things like, you know, the misdeeds of Eris Targaryen and the mass slaughter mm-hmm. of every Hollard and Darklin, save for Dantos Hollard at Duskendale in this dis- depiction, centering a story around an event which evokes Danny's moral and personal outrage. And again, it feeds the narrative that Danny has never really, truly dealt with who her father was. She will start to at the end of, of A Storm of Swords when Barristan starts to reveal a little bit more about Eris II. But even in A Dance with Dragons, she's still considering these to be usurper's dogs who had no place unseating her father. Like Eerie, that's Jorah Mormont playing a role for Daenerys, feeding her hatred of the usurper and its dogs rather than filling out a larger picture of the War of the Five Kings. Still, the Sack of King's Landing is an event which soured the justice of Robert's Rebellion in the end. It was a moral outrage for Robert to see the dead children openly call them dragon spawn. And there is a point where the most noble-hearted commander has soldiers who will simply kill, loot, and rape despite any orders to the contrary. With the Unsullied, they wouldn't kill or loot without a direct order from Daenerys. So that's good, right? But they got that way by having all of their humanity stripped of them. All of the Unsullied had their willpower and independent thought ripped from them by the brutality of the quote-unquote training process. In a way, the Unsullied are kind of similar in this way to the whites that the others control. The whites don't kill without directive from their other masters. They can't. They've had life taken away from them, and they've been enslaved to fight beyond their conscious lives. I think the Insulated work in a similar lens as the whites. They're instruments for the powerful. They are nearly video game characters only moving at the whims of the owner's joystick. So the moral onus is on Daenerys to be the righteous one. But if Danny purchases the Unsullied, then she's legitimizing the murder of more than 8,000 puppies and over 8,000 babies. Remember, the babies are killed first, and Krasny says that the Unsullied have a harder time killing the puppies, and those who can't are fed to the dogs. So you have to imagine that the number of dead babies is more than 8,000 from just this group of Unsullied alone, not the whole of Unsullied history. Beyond legitimizing the murder of children, Danny could further incentivize the practice of slavery to continue if she purchases the Unsullied. If she buys 8,000 Unsullied, there will be more money for the slavers in Astapor, more purchase power for slaves, more Unsullied to be made. So what Danny wrestles with here is beyond the simple moral act of purchasing slaves and the morality of having an army of her own whites. It's whether she's legitimizing the entire slave trade for an entire continent and ensuring that it will remain profitable and ultimately remain. I think that's a great point about how Danny, beyond her own individual moral struggle, how she slots into this the, the wider story of what's happening in Slaver's Bay and what's happening in Essos. And Danny shifts the discussion back in that direction, away from the more kind of abstract morality of man, back to Slaver's Bay specifically. If every man is just a beast waiting for the chance to spill blood, why hasn't Astapor fallen? After all, the city is crumbling. George keeps reminding us of that as we go through the chapter, describing the clouds of dust and the statues falling apart. The city's official defenders are clearly puffed-up peacocks who would be no good in a fight. Then again, Jorah says they wouldn't be the ones defending Astapor from an attack. The Unsullied would be. So the Unsullied aren't just a product on the market, they're part of Astapor's civic defense. 
Political and economic power have merged, both looking after the other, preventing any challenge. It's not like the, the textbook idea of the market versus the government. Here in Astapor, they're being shown as kind of one and the same thing. The young noblemen play at war, while the slaves do the dirty work. But more importantly, no one has any interest in sacking Astapor in the first place. This is my favorite part of the chapter, because George is working hard to establish a systematic understanding of the slave trade. Danny wonders why the Dothraki haven't knocked over these crumbling walls, carried the harpy back to Vaes Dothrak with the other conquered gods. She's thinking of violence in terms of spectacle, and she's seen the Dothraki carry people off into slavery. So why aren't they doing that here? Because, as Jorah asks, carry them off where? This is where they bring the slaves. If the Dothraki sack Slaver's Bay, the game is over. So this isn't just about the sinful nature of man, how we love to hurt one another. The Dothraki aren't going around enslaving people willy-nilly just for the sick thrill of it. They target specific populations and then bring them here. This is about profit, supply and demand in a marketplace. And what's so chilling about this is that it means not everyone involved in the slave trade has to be a monstrous sadist like Krasnys Monaklaus. All you have to do is care more about your salary than the suffering of strangers. And unfortunately, that's most people in real life as well as in universe. This is a closed loop. No one is going to interfere because no one has any interest in disrupting the supply chain. The Dothraki bring the raw material, aka human beings, to Slaver's Bay, where they are refined, aka tortured, into products that are then sold to elites from all over Essos. I think it's so important that George cements the status quo in our minds before Danny goes ham on the masters, because this reality defines her crusade. On one hand, this is maybe the strongest justification for Danny doing what she does next. No one else is going to do it. Only the outsider with no stake in any of it has the freedom to act. Danny is the ultimate disruptor. On the other hand, this is also why she immediately runs into huge problems. There's more to this than just killing the bad guys. It's an entire interconnected web of, inst of institutions and incentives. You're right. And, and I love this because it does a great job of world building for Essos. We see, when it, we see how an entire system of economics and government work in Essos, how the wars of the North feed into the slave economic system of the South. And then I love the further unfoldings we find out in A Dance with Dragons, when you see the enormous breadth of the slave system that Danny eventually brings down. The girl's true sin cannot be denied. This arrogant child has taken it upon herself to smash the slave trade. But that traffic was never confined to Slaver's Bay. It was part of the sea of trade that spanned the world, and the Dragon Queen has clouded the water. That's great world building, because it connects with character and plot, rather than, rather than existing outside of it. World building in and of itself has never been my primary interest in the series. And I, and I do appreciate people who dig deep in the world building lore and history, of course. They're great. They're awesome. They're friends of ours. But it's always struck me as not that interesting, unless it's in the context of character and plot. And I think it's really done well here. It's why I've been musing recently about why I'm much more fascinated with Robert's Rebellion than the Dance of the Dragons. There's personal character stakes attached to Robert's Rebellion for me that I don't feel with the Dance of the Dragons. And part of that personal stake is in how seemingly good people fought for an immoral cause. Like, say, I don't know, Rhaegar Targaryen. Exactly. The question of Rhaegar. How should Danny, a well-intentioned person who possesses unique power, handle a situation like this? Like anyone else, she needs role models. Unfortunately, her main role model is Viserys. And Danny knows that he would buy as many Unsullied as he possibly could. He wouldn't care at all about what they've been through, about what this would say about him. So instead, as you say, Danny has to fall back on the brother she never knew, Rhaegar Targaryen, the last dragon, an image of flawless chivalry in her mind's eye. He wouldn't have done business here. He led free men into battle, knighting many of them himself. He had values, goddammit. Jorah's poetic <laughs> description of Rhaegar's fall, 
you know, repeating uh, every kind of mantra a few times. He lost the war. He lost his kingdom. He lost his life. He fought nobly. He fought valiantly. It's interesting because it's it's true. But as with Danny's conversation with Barristan, it's not really relevant. Jorah seems to be implying that Rhaegar died because he fought nobly, valiantly, etc. And he should have cheated the way Danny is considering doing. That way he might have beaten Robert. That's really not accurate from what we know. There's no indication that Rhaegar was a noble fool like Daemon Blackfire on the Regress Fields, for example. Robert won through sheer physical skill, and also chance, part of every battle. It easily could have gone the other way. There is no guarantee of victory, no matter what you do. On one hand, that's liberating. You should do the right thing regardless. No chance and no choice, as Brienne says. On the other hand, it means there are always limits to your control of the situation. The masters think of the Unsullied as pure property, but will learn otherwise. Danny, too, has to learn that even living up to her image of heroism that she got uh, from Rhaegar via Viserys, that won't be enough to change the world. Killing a man is easy. Killing a system is hard. Yeah, the exciting righteous fury of war ends with the boring maintenance of peace. Something I'm really eager to cover in full for Daenerys' Come and Dance with Dragons. I know my excitement is kind of weird given that statement. But anyways, I think your point is the correct one that Jorah implies that Rhaegar lost because he didn't fight dirty, which is kind of an early echo of what Miles Toyn tells John Conning to do in A Dance with Dragons. Mm-hmm. Like, bro, you should have just burned Stony Step to the ground and gotten Robert's bones and then had, you know, Hostetelli and Ned Stark sue for peace after that point. Does Daenerys have to be more ruthless to win? She knows she'll have blood on her hands by the time all of this is done anyways, but what is winning? What did it mean for Rhaegar to take his army to the Trident? What did it mean for Robert to come out victorious in the end? And for what end should Danny become more ruthless? You know, we've ladled lots of criticism on Tyrion and Robb Stark and Stannis Baratheon for promising justice in general, but not presenting an, ag- an agenda in the particulars. So far in this series, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am, Danny's only goal in conquering Westeros has been to avenge her father and rain violence on the usurper's dogs and sit the Iron Throne. That's not a cause worth fighting for, really. There's no agenda for reform, nothing worth fighting and dying for here. Daenerys 3 and Beyond, I think, provides that cause. I think it starts with Danny getting a full view of the cruel world and her ability to change it. Danny is not going to fight nobly. She's not going to fight honorably in Astapor. She will fight valiantly to a point, and she won't die, at least not yet, not in Astapor anyways. She's going to bust this rotten system open, spilling fire and blood all over hell on earth. And it's going to be fucking awesome. And I can't wait to get to Dracarys with you. But you're right to point out the larger issues. Beating the piss out of Astapor Yunkai Marine is going to feel great. And yet there's a hard piece ahead. And as peace arrives, it becomes bitter. And slowly the violence Danian will inflict on Slaver's Bay will sour as the practice of slavery she will nobly attempt to eradicate will return to Yunkai. And yeah, here in Astapor. Kind of a bummer note to end on here before we've even gotten to all that cathartic violence in Danny 3. But George, loving us, his rereaders, seeing how rereading rewards the reading experience, he did say this one time, wants us to have the full scope of the story in mind when we reread this chapter and experience Danny's arc in full. Yep, even before you get to the specifics of A Dance with Dragons, which of course worked out much differently than George originally intended, you can already tell that in general his plan is to confront Danny with the gap between individual actions and uh, larger ripple effects and, and consequences and have her stymied by that and have her, her try to force her way through. It's uh, 
very tough, complex, and amazing arc that George weaves for Daenerys Targaryen in Storm and Dance with Dragons. So, shifting over to foreshadowing groundwork, Danny's quote-unquote dragon temper, temper that she says to, to Paris and Selmy comes out in full force in Marine when Danny feels like a quote-unquote avenging dragon when she crucifies 163 great masters in response to the 163 crucified children on every mile post to Marine. Again, here it's just a feeling of, of anger that she feels over what Barrison is telling her, but it, it spills out into real action come the come towards the end of A Storm of Swords. And again, it comes out again in, in Danny's second chapter in A Dance with Dragons, which she feels like a like a like she's giving them the dragon's mercy, so to speak. So that kind of dragon temper is something that we're going to see coming out in action as well as in word. It's that same trick George likes to pull where he he traps you in a relatable emotion and then asks you what you do with it. Like Danny, Danny thinks she's doing the definition of justice. She's getting one of the masters for every one of the slaves that they killed horribly, dealing with them with the same treatment. Oh, you thought it was so such an easy, such a correct thing to do that to your people. See how you like it. And so we we feel that same kind of fury, that righteous fury. But then we're confronted with the fact that it's just not enough to actually change how Slaver's Bay operates and that a vision of justice that Danny's going to put forward has to be larger than that. And there might not be a way to actually completely pull that off. And that's that's a very dispiriting for her as she deals with her out of Dance with Dragons. So yeah, I think George, is, George has that great handle on shifting between the, the individual and the systematic way of looking at what's happening in Essos and kind of filtering it through Danny's concerns, as you were saying earlier in the episode. Mm-hmm. Danny, at one point in this chapter, wishes she could just bribe Joffrey to go away with a chest of gold. She wishes it was going to be that easy to take over Westeros, <laughs> which is funny because that's exactly what the Masters of Yunkai try to do with her <laughs> later in this book. They show up with a big chest of gold and say, "Here you go. This will help you conquer Westeros. Now, please leave." And it works about <laughs> as well with Danny as it would have worked with Joffrey, which is to say, it does not work at all. So what you're saying is that Danny and Joffrey are basically the same person here. Not I'm saying they're morally identical. No nuances whatsoever. <laughs> that's the big takeaway from Slaver's Bay. Absolutely. No, I, I think that's a, that's a great point. And, and I think, you know, what if they just like, you, you know, when, when you look at like how the Dothraki operate, you kind of like feel, and, and I felt this way too, when like the magisters are being like cowardly and hiding behind their walls and giving the Dothraki gifts in order to make them go away. Same thing for the Astapori here um, in Slaver's Bay, giving the Dothraki gifts so they'll go away and not, and not sack Astapor. And, you, you know, you kind of though think like, yeah, that's that's not a bad course of avoiding a, a whole lot of bloodshed. You know, that was what many people and many 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 Roman emperors did, anyways. They could give chests of gold in order to make the the Huns go away. The the Byzantine emperors of the early of, of the of the fifth fourth and fifth century gave the Huns and the Goths chests of gold to make them go away and keep the peace in order to to delay and end bloodshed. Um, you kind of wish that would be the case for for Daenerys that she would be able to just you know give Joffrey a chest of gold and just make that rotten creature like go away too it's a it's a nice it's a nice dream but of course it can never be realized yep and it's it it doesn't work because political power is more valuable than one chest of gold and also because the offer of a chest of gold just kind of seems like an insult it kind of makes danny even angrier at these people (laughs) than she would have been otherwise and probably the same would be true of the lannisters Mm-hmm. So moving into theory and discussion for this portion of the episode, there's one little bit in the middle of this chapter when Danny is thinking about her new sexual relationship with Eerie, about what she wants, that she has a dream about a different lover, someone she'd want more, a younger, comely one hidden in the shadows. <laughs> so I, th- I thought we could talk a little bit about that. I think the, the obvious answer for who this is, is John. I think that especially coming back after the show, when, which uh, led to a, a Danny-John romantic relationship, that, that seems very strong. But she's sp- specifically having this dream when she's thinking about how no one really excites her except Drogo. So I wanted to ask, do you think do you think John is going to remind Danny of Cal Drogo? Because I don't know. I could see arguing that one either way. This is a really good point. It, I wrote an essay a long, long time ago in which 
I talked about, um, in which which I talked about a little bit about what Jon Snow represents for Daenerys, mm-hmm. and that he kind of represents that sweet spot. The sweets in, in, in the essay itself, I talked about how Jon is the middle path between Dario Naharis and and his Serzo Lorek, which of course are going to be the two future lovers of, of Daenerys Targaryen. Uh, in the series, with Dario's uh, culminating their romance in Danny's seventh chapter, sixth or seventh, I think seventh chapter in A Dance with Dragons, and his star in in her eighth chapter uh, when when she gets married to him. I think it's a really interesting uh, dynamic here because I, I think the younger one is supposed to be Jon Snow here, but George in writing A Dance with Dragons, I'm not sure that he really planned for dinners to spend much time originally in Marine until she, of course, did spend a lot of time in, in Marine. Um, so you, you do have to wonder, like, at a point, is she, because she does look at Dario in A Storm of Swords and thinks that, you know, this guy's actually pretty hot with all that blue hair and that gold tooth and everything like that. Who wouldn't want a piece of that? So is that the person that we're supposed to look at here? I think, I kind of feel like it's kind of a subtle misdirection by George here that Dario is the character that, that George is, is referring to. And then his star, of course, him of the tepid kisses, as, you know, Adam Feldman wrote so well about in, in, in A Dance with Dragons. And of course, George wrote so well about it in A Dance with Dragons, too. Um kind of represents that that character as well. And yet, I really think the ultimate person is Jon Snow. And Jon is really interesting. And because he is kind of an equal to Daenerys Targaryen, at, we both mm-hmm. think, I believe, that he will be king of the North. So he will be an equal royal footing to Daenerys Targaryen. He will be her sibling, right? I mean, Jon, not her sibling, rather her, her nephew in the form of Rhaegar and Lyanna um, being married to being potentially married, but uh, but bearing Jon Snow forth. So there will be that sense of, of a common shared identity. There will be an equal footing between the two. Danny has spent this, a lot of this chapter thinking that she doesn't have any real friends or real equals, people who are going to be equal to the queen to the queen and the, and the mother of dragons. And yet Jon will have that role. He will be, you know, he'll have his own magical animal in the form of ghost in the, in the dire wolf. And he will be a Targaryen too. So there is like equal footing there for Daenerys and Jon. So I think that the younger, more comely one hidden in the shadows, I mean, Jon is often talked about as, as being hidden in the shadows. Stannis mm-hmm. often, often talked about as that way as well. Of course, Stannis and Daenerys, that would be quite the pairing. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it might even work out. But but I mean, like, you know, I I do think it's, it's I do think it's Jon. I do think that George is hinting at this. As he said in, in 2010, when he visited um, the set of, season one from for a game of thrones he told one of the directors his name is skipping mine because i wrote about this or i remember reading about this a long time ago to one of the directors that john and danny coming together was always part of the the point of a song of ice and fire so that's i think it's john i think it's uh it's it's interesting that that john is this character here i do wonder is is there like some sort of like magical thing going here because this isn't danny's dream right it's not her like fantasy this is actually in her dream world. We know that dreams in A Song of Ice and Fire and, and in literature in general have, tend to have more meaning. Is this some sort of magical crossing of, <laughs> I don't know, magical crossing of destinies in, in the dream world? Is that what's going on here? That's interesting to consider. It's not lingered on much, but it is, yeah, it's not something that Danny is specifically thinking that she wants. It's just something that is, is there in her subconscious. And something that I think might be uh, dramatically powerful is if even as the reader starts to understand that that's, that's John, that her destiny is leading her to, she might not necessarily realize that. And so she might get into the problem she gets into with prophecy where she knows that something is supposed to happen, but she doesn't know what. So she starts looking for it in a paranoid sense. 
And maybe she's going to wonder if young Griff is supposed to fit that role. Maybe that's going to be part of her her uh, rejection of his faction is wondering whether he's supposed to be the younger and comely one deciding he's not. But it's I just think it, it all speaks to how having that level of prophetic consciousness doesn't actually help you because it, it makes you second guess your decisions instead of trusting them. And that's something we're going to we're going to see a lot more of with Danny. And the sad part is, is that her her personal life is affected by that as, as, as much politically. She's never going to be able to analyze these images to completion it's it's true with most prominently true with the betrayals from the house of the undying but i think it it cuts across her entire story yeah the betrayal angle is the thing that i think is going to be the most sad for danny because Mm -hmm. she finally finds someone who is of equal status of her and he's going to be the one that's ultimately going to going to kill her i think that's that's going to happen in, in the books as we saw in season eight of the show and i think it's uh ultimately shrouds danny's desires for for companionship for love in an equal in an equal setting to kind of come down crashing around her and that's tragic and i think that's that ultimately points to danny's tragic arc in in a song of ice and fire but i think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of a storm of sword scenarios 2 part 2 as always thank you so much for listening and thank you for our patrons for supporting us if you have the chance please rate and review us on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, soundcloud podbean spotify anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access to our episodes, bonus episodes, and a lot of other great benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can also find me at Quentin on Twitter. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself was renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Setson Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Narco Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Septon T-Bone the Low Septon, Refined Ringler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong One and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, Sir Andrew of H-Town, Archmaester Hugh of the Tower, who's Rod and Ringer of Tinfoil, A.A. Ron Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Yaron Crow's Eye, Ned M., and our newest High Lord and High Lady, Lady Savannah, and Sir Jonathan of Casa del Tompog, who is fortunate to have a Lord Husband indulgent of his mild Song of Ice and Fire obsession. So uh, special, uh, thanks as always to our High Lords and Ladies, and a special welcome to Lady Savannah and Sir Jonathan, who is fortunate to have that Husband indulgent of his mild obsession. We should all be so lucky. We should all be so lucky. Yeah, thank you. Thanks you to all of our High Lord and Lady patrons, and welcome to Lady Savannah and Sir Jonathan. Love the, the names, and uh, thank you for your support. So, join us next week for a Storm of Swords Brand 1 and 2, in which Bran, Jojen, Mira, and Hodor walk through the woods, and then we hear about a not really important story about the backstory of the Song of Ice and Fire, something about, I don't know, what, what is it again? The Night of the 
The lolling tree, LOLing tree, is that what it's called? I, I don't remember how George phrases it. Some weird backstory won't come up again, not remotely important. Absolutely. Yes, we didn't cover Brand 1 as it came up uh, kind of chronologically in Storm of Swords because it's a well-written chapter but kind of slight in terms of things happening, so we decided to combine the first two Brand chapters and Brand 2 is next in the rotation, so that's what we're going to be doing next week, an episode on the, the combination of those first two chapters for Brand and the Storm of Swords. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to our patrons for supporting us, and we'll see you next week for Storm of Swords Brand 1 and 2.